to Civil War Talk Radio with host Jerry Prokopovich. Our program covers all aspects of Civil War history, from the battlefields to the home fronts, and features guest experts, plus insight from your host as they discuss the most critical period in American history. Now, here is your host, Jerry Prokopovich. This is Jerry Prokopovich with Civil War Talk Radio. John Brown's body lies a moldering in the grave. His soul is marching on. Everybody knows about old John Brown, but almost nobody knows about John C. Brown, even though he was a Confederate Major General who fought in almost every major Western theater battle from Fort Donelson to Chickamauga to Franklin, and after the war became governor of Tennessee. We'll meet tonight with someone who does know this John Brown. It's Sam Davis Elliott, author of John C. Brown of Tennessee, Rebel, Redeemer, and Railroader. And Sam Elliott will be our guest on Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Now you can take your favorite Voice America radio program with you anywhere. Sign up for our mobile app if you have an iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. The Voice America Interactive Radio Player, powered by Aircast, gives you the freedom to listen to any of our programs anywhere, live, and on demand. No registration is required. Listen to your favorite Voice America hosts and discover new ones. Download the Voice America mobile app for iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry, powered by Aircast. Visit the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu. Dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich coming to you tonight, as usually is the case, from the third floor of the Brewster Building on the campus of East Carolina University in Greenville, North Carolina, not representing the university or its buildings, its programs, its policies, anything like that, just speaking for myself. My guest will do the same, not speaking for anyone but himself, as we always do every show all year on Civil War Talk Radio. This is the last show of calendar year 2017, Uh, This, of course, as we all know, was the year of 1,000 likes on Facebook, uh, so announced back in uh, January or September, uh, and we made it. Uh, Thanks to all of you who liked uh, Impediments of War, the page on Facebook that tells you what's happening here on on, uh, Civil War Talk Radio, so appreciate your support over the past year. Look forward to uh, more of it and giving you more shows to enjoy in the year to come. We'll talk more about that in just a minute. Uh, no uh, sports of note to report this evening, but uh, a topic I, I make every earnest effort to stay away from uh, in the introductory remarks is politics, but once in a while it strikes close to home here at uh, the ECU History Department. Uh, and hopefully by the time you're listening to this, you downloaded it sometime in 2018, and uh, this idea that's floating around now will just be a bad memory that came and went, and more enlightened legislators tossed it aside. But at the moment, uh, one of the two tax plans that's being negotiated in the national legislature has a provision that would treat graduate student uh, tuition waivers as if they were uh, taxable income. And what this means, uh, to give you an idea, uh, do a little simple math, here at East Carolina, graduate students from out of state uh, pay a tuition of $20,000 a year if they are 
working as a graduate assistant, and I have an excellent graduate assistant this semester, I'm happy to say. Uh, I'm not sure what they pay them now. When I was department chair, they got paid $7,500 a semester. So 15000 a year, no benefits. Uh, take your health insurance out of that, and then you have to live on what's left. It's pretty close to the poverty line, but hey, you're a grad student. You know, Get some roommates, buy a lot of ramen noodles. That, that's part of the part of the process. I have no problem with that. Uh, and you pay 15000 you might pay a few hundred dollars federal tax. If you get a tuition waiver for your $20,000 tuition, then under the new plan, that would be taxed. Now you'd be taxed as if you're making 35000 And out of that fifteen k you're supposed to live on, more than 3000 of that would be federal tax, six times what you're paying today. Uh, nobody... Nobody could live on that um, and go to school, which means not that everybody would drop out. What it means is uh, that the college would have to increase its stipends for the grad students. And the only way to do that by giving everybody another 3000 so they could pay this enormous jump in income tax would be to uh, raise four of them by 3000 and cut the fifth one altogether to cannibalize that one to pay the other four. So the grad students, I can tell you today in the history lab, are freaked out about this because they think either they'll have to pay a lot more or one out of five around the room is going to be cut next year. Um, Hopefully that'll never happen. But who comes up with these ideas? Who thinks this is the way to, to, to balance a budget? It's just... Uh, well, let's talk about let's talk about some other numbers uh, uh, briefly. The I was looking at a, a uh, Civil War organization that offers tours uh, of different historical places. Always a good idea. I highly recommend going on them to learn about things on the ground. And there's a new one coming up uh, that goes to Eastern Carolina. I thought that sounds interesting. I'll look into that. Maybe even go along and learn something about uh, the backyard here. Uh, and when I saw what was involved, I, I don't want to say it's a, there's anything wrong with this trip. I think it's an excellent trip. The, the hosts have been guests on this show. It looks really good. But I looked at what it cost, and it costs uh, a little under half of what you pay for the Stephen Ambrose historical tours trip, this hallowed ground. But it's less than half as long, and it doesn't include lodging, which is a big chunk of the expense. Plus, you have to get to eastern North Carolina, which means more difficult travel, probably renting a car. Uh, It made me realize that the This Hallowed Ground Tour is a really good deal. And here I am giving a commercial uh, for a product from which I don't especially benefit. I do get to give one of the tours. I give several each year. But if you're looking for a really interesting Christmas gift for a loved one or for yourself, uh, this hallowed ground, the, the tour by Stephen Ambrose Historical Tours, is is highly recommended. Last year, uh, a person, I won't name him, I'll just call him the luckiest man in the world because his spouse thought uh, this would be good for him and arranged for him to be able to go and do this tour uh, was was able to do so and, and he was not the only one it's, it's not an unusual thing for individuals to come because their spouse has arranged for it or maybe kicked them out of the house to go do it uh, it's not unusual actually uh, sometimes uh, husbands come without their wives sometimes wives without their husbands uh, sometimes Fathers bring their adult sons, uh, sometimes uh, other combinations of people. Other people come alone. It, it's it's a wide group of people. But if you know someone uh, who has more money than you do but doesn't have your passion for the Civil War, uh, here's your chance to drop some hints. Civil War uh, Tours at uh, StephenAmbroseTours.com. Interesting thought. Uh, And with that in mind, I hope everybody has a happy holiday season, Uh, to quote the ancient wisdom of uh, National Lampoon, I hope everyone is at peace with their God, whatever you perceive him to be, Harry Thunderer or Cosmic Muffin. And when this is the last show before the holiday season, uh, we will be gone, Uh, reruns will appear next week and weeks after until January 10th. 2018. We'll be back 
Terry Alford will be our first guest in the new year, author of a biography of John Wilkes Booth. Uh, turning to the opposite end of the moral spectrum, the next uh, show topic will be U.S. Grant, uh, the new book, The Presidency of U.S. Grant by Charles W. Calhoun. It's in the, the Kansas University Press presidency series, wonderful books in that one. And I know Chuck's book will be a worthy successor. January 24th, uh, negotiating that one. I have a guest sort of lined up. I'll let you know more later. On the 31st, Michael Hill, one of the uh, producers of the North Carolina Atlas of the Civil War, will be with us. Very interesting book. On February 7th, it will be John Matsui. His book is called The First Republican Army. It's about Pope's Army of Virginia in 1862, uh, a topic that I've, I've not seen written about in that those terms. We'll have a return guest to the show on uh, February 14th in time for the, uh, the Lincoln birthday just after. It'll be Daniel Crofts. He's been here before, but he has a book. It's been out a little while called Lincoln and the Politics of Slavery, the Other 13th Amendment, and the Struggle to Save the Union. Very uh, uh, highly praised book. On the 21st of February, Paula Whitaker with a book, A Civil Life in an Uncivil Time. That is, uh, I'll pull that up here, uh, Julia Wilbur's Struggle for Purpose. Interesting to read that one. And then on February 28th, uh, Eric Lee Smith joins us, originally scheduled for last February. He's designing a new game, both a board and computer game, uh, covering some Civil War battles. He's designed some very good games in the past, and he'll be with us to talk about that uh, on February 28th. Then it'll be time for spring break. Can't, Can't even think about that before holiday break. So check out impedimentsofwar.org to find out about these things. Uh, buy all your holiday things through Amazon by going through the link there, and that helps out the bookstore. And don't forget to send money to Civil War Talk Radio so I can send it on to the Citizens Advocating Memorial Preservation uh, in New York State. We got a little bit of a, a late start this evening. We'll move right on to our guest tonight. Uh, his name is Sam Davis Elliott. He's the author of John C. Brown of Tennessee, Rebel, Redeemer, and Railroader. Uh, We'll find out uh, who John Brown was and who Sam Elliott is. Uh, Mr. Elliott, are you there? I I am here, yes. Uh, Well, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Uh, uh, Glad to have you here. You and I have corresponded a little, haven't had a chance to meet. Is is it okay if we go by first names? Absolutely. Uh, it says Sam Davis. Elliot, are you, is this a Southern thing? Are you Sam Davis or just Sam? To uh, uh, no, just Sam. Thank you. There, I want to make sure. I, uh, I know if I if I hear my middle name used, it means my mother is contacting me, and I've done something wrong. Uh, so I just don't want to do that. The back of the book says you're a practicing attorney in Chattanooga. Uh, you've written other books about the Civil War, but but that's your day job. Uh, what what brings you from that world to uh, the Civil War history world? You know, Jerry, I hit a an early midlife crisis about 20 years ago, and instead of going off and buying a red convertible and and uh, doing other things that would not be recommended, I uh, decided to write. And and the Civil War in particular. Yes, yes. Um, I've, I've been interested in the Civil War since I was uh, nine or ten, I guess, and uh, went to the University of the South, which has a connotation. It's uh, originally established as a sort of Southern Nationalist uh, Ivy League school um, by uh, bishops of the Episcopal Church in the 1850s, and uh, kind of has a flavor of the Army of Tennessee, like uh, Washington and Lee has for the Army of Northern Virginia. And sort it sort of fed on itself. Uh, it's, it, re- reading your acknowledgments, I see uh, a lot of familiar names. Uh, the people on listening to the show will recognize Dave Powell, uh, Tim Smith, Jim Ogden. They, they all people who've been on the show and do a lot of work with the Western Theater, with the Army of uh, Tennessee and the Army of the Tennessee and others. So. Uh, and and right there in Chattanooga, it's a beautiful city, beautiful setting, uh, and and couldn't be more in the heart of the Western Theater. 
Uh, almost the epicenter in, if in, in, in some ways, absolutely. I, I, the the uh, Society of Civil War Historians had their annual meeting there uh, a couple of years ago, and I got to go to Chattanooga for the first time. Uh, well, actually, second time, but first time to really see some things and just was really, uh, really impressed with the amount of history right at hand. Well, we're going to take a break in a moment, but I'm going to come back and, and start by asking you uh, the number one question. Uh, why should we learn about John C. Brown of Tennessee? Uh, you know, in a nutshell, uh, what's what's why should we even bother? Uh, I'll let you think about that for a moment. We'll take a short break. My name is Jerry Prokopovich. My guest tonight, Sam Davis Elliott, and this is Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Now you can take your favorite Voice America radio program with you anywhere. Sign up for our mobile app if you have an iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. The Voice America interactive radio player, powered by Aircast, gives you the freedom to listen to any of our programs anywhere, live, and on demand. No registration is required. Listen to your favorite Voice America hosts and discover new ones. Download the Voice America mobile app for iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. Powered by Aircast. Visit the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. The latest business information is made simple with the Voice America Business Network. The professionals in the business world bring you live talk radio shows featuring an array of business topics, strategies for building wealth, sales and marketing, stock trading, investing, and business technology. Voice America business hosts are professionals in their fields and bring to the airwaves weekly business discussions that offer up-to-date information, advice, and education. The Voice America Business Network. The bottom line in business talk. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu. Dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking tonight with Sam Elliott, author of John C. Brown of Tennessee, Rebel, Redeemer, and Railroader. Uh, so, Sam, why, why a book on John C. Brown? Well, um, first, uh, why should people, I guess the question is, uh, why should people read it, or why did I want to write it? And I think I'll, <laughs> I'll go, since I'm probably talking to potential buyers out there, I'll say why you should read it first. Um, he was a, a competent officer in a, an army that, that really had to search to find competent officers. Uh, as you mentioned in your uh, um, in your introduction, he was president just about every uh, significant battle and campaign in the Western theater, and therefore to study him and his movements in the war and his activities in the war is to get a good understanding of what went on in the Western theater. And then, uh, as I point out in the book, he, he really fills a sort of a significant utility player division commander role in 1864. Um, uh, depending on how you want to characterize it, and, and, and if you feel, even if you throw out temporary division commands where he's just holding the spot for a day or two until someone else is appointed, um, he commands three different divisions on the battlefield in 1864. But, so he, he's a, a significant uh, player, utility player, as, as you put it. Uh, so while we're we're taking a, a short intermission here, getting our guest reconnected, uh, the, the gremlins of Internet Talk Radio striking us. Uh, question about John C. Brown, uh, general, major general in the Army of Tennessee, 
uh, serves at all these battles. Interesting to, to find out what kind of character uh, he was. This is a book I will say I really enjoyed reading. It's very uh, well written. And if you're listening to the show, you're, you you probably read more than a, a book or two about the war. You've you know, read the, the big overviews, the McPherson or the Catton or even Shelby Foote's uh, work. So you know something about the, the big outlines. And then reading an, another book on Gettysburg, you know, you know who's going to win, you know who's going to show up at what time of the battle. So there's a real virtue in uh, getting into that sweet spot where you're learning about something you don't already know about, uh, in this case, John C. Brown, uh, but not so obscure that you don't need to know about him, that, that uh, one, one can write uh, a biography of, of anybody, uh, uh, one can do a micro-history of any battle, uh, where occasionally the, the reader will think, do I have to know this? Uh, is, is this really interesting to, to me or just to the descendants of the individual involved? And in, in this case, with, uh, with Brown, we've got somebody who's interesting, sufficiently important, uh, uh, and uh, omnipresent at these, these important events to be interesting uh, for that context, and uh, also a well uh, and, and a well-written presentation of it. So, Sam, we had a little uh, uh, breakdown in our connection, but we're back. Uh, starting with with Brown's pre-war career, one of the things I found very interesting was the the politics of the South. Uh, he's neither a Democrat nor a Republican uh, before the war. Can you talk about his his political background? Yeah, his political background is uh, as a Whig. Uh, uh, one of our favorite, one of the favorite words in our house is the word wiggery, uh, yeah. and <laughs> and um, uh, he's heavily influenced by his brother Neil S. Brown, who was a two two year uh, term um, uh, Whig governor of Tennessee in the late eighteen forties, and then Zachary Taylor appointed him as the the, the brother Neil as the minister to Russia for three years in the early 1850s. And John is about 17 years younger than Neil, and therefore is pretty heavily influenced politically by his brother. So he's, as, as a, a Whig, he leans more to the uh, conservative unionist position than the fire-reading secessionist. Uh, Absolutely. Position. But he, yes. he does go, when the state leaves the Union, he goes with it. Yeah, I, I think that, it, you know, a, a number of historians have defined the term conditional unionist. And mm-hmm. I think a lot of the more conservative voters in Tennessee work, in fact, conser- uh, conditional, unit, uh, conditional unionists. And uh, uh, the, his whole area there in south, in south central Tennessee uh, became a uh, uh, sort of switched its allegiances as time went on to a uh, secessionist viewpoint once Lincoln called for troops after Fort Sumter. And in terms of uh, Brown's background, he he's not overwhelmingly wealthy, but he, he married up, it looks like, uh, into a higher class socially. Yes, yes, he did. Uh, both of his wives, uh, his uh, First wife, Anne Pointer, was the uh, daughter of a prominent uh, uh, immigrant from Virginia, I guess would be the best way to characterize that, and the, who was one of the top 50 slaveholders in Tennessee. And, uh, and then he married into the Childress family uh, during the war. Uh, his wife was, he was 35, she was 17. And um, but um, uh, she was knitting some socks that had Confederate flags on them, and they uh, it was kind of a love at first sight toward toward a sort of thing. Her father was a prominent banker and landowner in Middle Tennessee around Murfreesboro, and um, his sister was James K. Pope's wife. So he's definitely uh, well connected. His brother's a governor. He's. Uh, married to a relative of a president, uh, and so he goes into the war uh, as as every uh, politically prominent person would have had to do at that time. Uh, but his his first campaign, you describe uh, the, Fort Donelson, does not end up well. I, I was uh, 
interested in reading that, uh, particularly uh, description of, of, of his captivity. Uh, this the, mostly when you think of Civil War captivity, uh, you, you picture Andersonville or Camp uh, Douglas, uh, one of these dreadful places. Uh, Brown gets captured at, at Donaldson, and I, I don't want to say it's not so bad, but but talk about what happens to him. Well, um, he of course he's an officer. Uh, and it's early in the war, and uh, there's even some thought uh, about uh, taking it lightly on some of the Tennessee officers because uh, maybe you can get them back in the Union easier than someone from the Deep South. And so they are all sent to um, Fort Warren in the um, in the Boston Harbor, where I noted recently the, uh, the Confederate monument was removed. Uh, commemorating some of the prisoners who died there. And they had a very comfortable confinement uh, as Civil War prison camps go. Uh, the uh, the federal uh, commander of the fort is a uh, is very well regarded, a very professional soldier, uh, uh, extends courtesies to these officers. And uh, notwithstanding that, Brown, who is maybe you might characterize as a reluctant secessionist in 1861, comes out of that captivity a very virulent secessionist. So uh, notwithstanding the, the, the light uh, treatment uh, that he receives at Fort Warren, he uh, comes out as a true Confederate believer. That is one of the progressions that, that one sees throughout the book as, as his ideas evolve. Uh, he certainly becomes more more staunchly Confederate throughout the war. Now, when he gets back, he doesn't go straight back to his old regiment. He was he was commanding a regiment uh, early in the war, and one of the things that, that struck me reading this book was how uh, fluid the organization was in the Army of, of Tennessee. The regiments, we, we tend to think the Confederacy kept its brigades together, regiments stayed in one uh, brigade home, and maybe in Lee's army that was more common, but it looks to me like like Brown's commanding a different brigade or a different set of regiments uh, in every chapter. Yeah, it's a, of course it's a, it's a it's a fluid situation at the first of the war, as you might imagine. Um, ironically, uh, a member of the brigades that he commands at Fort uh, Donaldson, he ends up commanding in 1864. But uh, uh, there is a reorganization of the army of Tennessee, or of the Confederate Army, which I guess at that time was the Army of Mississippi, or the Mississippi, mm-hmm. uh, in late 1862, and and the regiments kind of stay uh, together for several months, and then there is a, they send substantial reinforcements down to Mississippi's Carter Stevenson's division, and, and then uh, elements of what was Breckenridge's division, and they have to kind of Paste together the troops they leave in Tennessee together in the new units, and, and Brown ends up in a new unit in, in a new division commanded by A.P. Stewart. And then later in 1863, uh, Braxton Bragg reorganizes the army because there are officers in places that he doesn't trust them to be, and he wants them to be in organizations where they are being uh, commanded by people he does trust. And so there's a lot of flux in that time period, uh, first from just the normal situation of the, the first of the war, and then and then these reorganizations of the army undertaken by Braxton Bragg. Now, that another subtext running through the book is is Bragg and his uh, sort of difficult command relationships within his army. Uh, a lot of that starts at the Battle of Perryville in October 1862. Uh, I wrote about this in a book on the Army of the Ohio from the Union perspective. Uh, it was not particularly well handled from that side, but uh, Brown's experience suggests it wasn't particularly well handled from the Confederate side either. Uh, could you talk about Brown's experience at Perryville? Well, Brown Brown was, uh, as you mentioned, when he was exchanged, he was uh, 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 t- uh, posted to the Army of the Mississippi, which uh, became the Army of Tennessee. Mm-hmm. Um, his his actual uh, regiment, the Third Tennessee, was sent to Mississippi and kept in Mississippi. So 
so um, they organized a new brigade for him, uh, the 1st and 3rd Florida and the 41st Mississippi. And um, uh, he was promoted to Brigadier General. He had uh, Albert Sidney Johnston, uh, during the time of the Fort Donaldson campaign, had suggested uh, that he be elevated to uh, Brigadier General because he had, he was already effectively commanding a brigade. And then he uh, he and Simon Bolivar Buckner, he is a protege of Buckner's, and Buckner gets him promoted to Brigadier General when they're exchanged uh, out of Fort Warren. And so here's a new Brigadier General, and here's a new brigade, and, and, and Brown marches into Kentucky with the rest of the Army of Mississippi and fights very well, but um, is, is wounded uh, sort of dangerously early in the fight at Perryville. I think the book says he was shot in the thigh. Uh, Correct. I mean, that, that easily could be a fatal wound, uh, you know, with a broken bone or an artery. Uh, but but he he survives, obviously. Uh, it, it also sounded like there wasn't too much information uh, specifically on, on immediately after his, his wounding. And, and this will turn out not to be his only wound. Uh, do you know any more about exactly what happened to him? Well, I, I don't. Um, you know, as you know, we've got to go with the evidence that we have. All I know is that he was wounded, and I, I you know, sort of gave us a small account of what occurred to his brigade after he uh, was wounded or left the field. And then the next evidence I really have of him is that he's reported showing up in Knoxville um, some days later, uh, around October 20th, I believe it is, uh, and he's wounded on the 8th. So he has to travel these rough roads out of Kentucky. Uh, if he's lucky, he's in an ambulance. If not, he's in a wagon, and uh, it's an uncomfortable trip as, as far as it goes. But uh, he's healthy and a relatively young man and, uh, uh, you know, came out of the wound okay. That's a good, uh, it is a good example of how, how sometimes you have to fill in the gaps, uh, uh, you know, where he's on one date, then another, and, uh, have have to infer things from that, and that is the nature of evidence uh, for the historian. So uh, he rejoins the army. Uh, refresh my memory: Did was he in the battle at uh, Stones River at Murfreesboro? Uh, no, or? he was. No, he he was back with the army, but he was not considered uh, fit for field service. I don't think. I mean, uh, and mm-hmm. so Bragg. Uh, put him in command of the, quote, post of Murfreesboro. Mm-hmm. And, and and what duties that entailed, I'm not really sure. I didn't have any evidence of it. And But uh, there's a letter from a member of his staff who, who indicates that that was, his, uh, that was his function during the time of the Battle of Murfreesboro. So we next see him in action at, at Chickamauga in September 1863, the last great uh, Confederate victory in the West. And uh, he's, again, if I remember correctly, he's wounded again here, uh, just about the same place as last time. Uh, well, no, no, his, his last wound at Franklin is just about the that's same what place. It, okay, at, that's right. At, at Chickabalga, he is hit by a spent ball and probably knocked off his horse, and that kind of rendered him senseless for the rest of the day. It was considered a light wound, and he returned to battle fairly quick, or returned to duty fairly quickly. But it did knock him uh, out of the fighting uh, part of the second day at Chickamauga, September 20th. Now, he, there he was, though, right in the thick of the fighting. His, his brigade was, was trying to break, uh, break through the Union line. Uh, how, how did that work out for him? Well, uh, uh, there, was a, there was a significant crisis uh, in the Confederate line on September 19th. Uh, Two federal uh, brigades were uh, basically ganging up on the leftmost brigade of uh, Cheatham's division, uh, that of uh, Marcus Wright. Um, the Federals overrun a battery, W.W. Carnes' battery uh, there, uh, and, and, of course, the battery side is still commemorated at Chickamauga. And um, uh, Bragg is not sure what's going on, and he... Um, calls for A.P. Stewart, uh, who is in command of Brown's division and the subject of my first book, and uh, basically says, uh, more or less, march to the sound of the guns. And Stewart, fortunately, is a very competent commander, 
Uh, he, he places his division in, in a successive line of brigades, and the 1st Brigade, Clayton's, sort of uh, blunts the federal attack, and then Brown is able to, um, to overrun the captured guns and fight two federal brigades to a standstill. Um, so it's an effective performance, certainly. We're going to take another short break. We'll come right. right back, talk more with Sam Elliott, author of John C. Brown of Tennessee, Rebel, Redeemer, and Railroader. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. If you think you've seen online TV before, let us surprise you. VoiceAmerica.tv is online now. The leader in live Internet talk radio has done it again. Multiple channels, a state-of-the-art viewing experience, live and on-demand programs streaming 24 hours a day. It's exactly what you want, when you want it. VoiceAmerica.tv. From health and wellness to business, sports, and everything in between, discover our new world. Visit VoiceAmerica.tv now and experience the future of online television. VoiceAmerica.tv. These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu.edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking today with Sam Davis Elliott, author of John C. Brown of Tennessee, Rebel, Redeemer, and Railroader. We've been talking about uh, General Brown's career leading brigades into action uh, at Perryville, at uh, Chickamauga. Brown was certainly, as a political person, involved in the politics of his army. Uh, uh, I believe he was one of the signers of the petition to get rid of Bragg as the commander. Is that correct? That is correct. Um, and, and I have concluded that that is probably because of uh, the, the influence of Simon Balber Buckner who was one of the instigators of the petition. I think historians have concluded that. And since uh, Brown was uh, a protege of Buckner's, uh, it's pretty easy to conclude that he had a lot of uh, influence on Brown and Brown's decision to sign the petition. And the, uh, the winter of 63 for the, the, the Rebel Army of Tennessee was, uh, you mentioned the, the winter of the great uh, religious revival that uh, swept through uh, through the whole Confederacy, really. Uh, you don't say a lot about Brown's religion in the book. Uh, was there much evidence of his own personal uh, beliefs? Uh, you know, I, I, I did not have a lot of his personal correspondence, uh, no diaries, uh, any papers that I had were more of the official nature, either in the OR or uh, as governor or maybe where he was quoted in the newspaper. Uh, mm-hmm. I believe that he started out life as a Presbyterian um, there in, in south-central Tennessee, and then as he married in, in, into these more influential families, uh, became an Episcopalian. Uh, and uh, he certainly was, um, he was a friend of uh, Charles Todd Quintard, who was um, a very prominent Episcopalian cleric who um, sort of attached himself to the high command of the Army of Tennessee, and uh, uh, Quintard would certainly minister to him later in life when he had in several crises like the death of a child. Now, one of the other key things uh, for any politician of this era, uh, 
and we'll talk about it momentarily when he becomes governor, uh, the question of slavery and race. Uh, you suggest that, that Brown certainly was aware of, of Patrick Claiborne's idea uh, proposed of arming enslaved men to fight for the Confederacy. Where did Brown stand on that? Well, there's a bit of evidence uh, in a book uh, uh, where they collected the writings of Campbell Brown, who was from actually uh, one of the original members of the Third Tennessee and came later became uh, uh, Richard Stoddart Ewell's uh, a staff officer uh, because uh, Ewell married his mother, and uh, she had a significant. She was a significant lady in Middle Tennessee. And there was a report that Brown was among the people who who supported that initiative. I don't think openly, you know, the the, the great meeting that they had in early 1864 was all corps division commanders and not brigade commanders. But there seems to be some evidence that Brown supported that, and and it's not surprising in another sense because Brown later wrote that he and Claiborne had very good relations during the war. So we next see Brown in action uh, outside of Chattanooga. Uh, his brigade ends up involved. Uh, and listeners, take take your mental map of Chattanooga, Tennessee, along the Tennessee River, and there to the south southwest is Lookout Mountain, and due south and off to the east is Missionary Ridge. The Confederates occupy that position and besiege the town uh, in 1863. The uh, uh, and Brown's brigade is up on way over on the left side of the, the Rebel line on Lookout Mountain and fights a battle there. And the next day, they're all the way on the right side of the line. Uh, how? What, what were they doing uh, all over the place like that? <laughs> well, um, when the, when the Federals originally entered into the Chattanooga area, uh, they uh, they sent wide ranging columns, and one of the columns went over Lookout Mountain. Uh, close to Trenton, Georgia, into McLemore's Cove, where, of course, the Army of Tennessee missed a great chance to to isolate and destroy a portion of the Army of Cumberland. And so Bragg is looking for that move to be made again while he's got the Federal Army pinned in Chattanooga. And so uh, that area is defended rather lightly, but it is defended. And And after the reorganization in early November of 1863, the Army of Tennessee... Brown and his men are transferred from the position that A.P. Stewart and his division held in Chattanooga Valley way up onto Lookout Mountain. And, of course, the Federals attack Lookout Mountain on the uh, morning and afternoon of, of November 24th, 1863, and uh, Bragg makes the decision to abandon Lookout Mountain. And he understands that the main threat to his army is coming from uh, his right, which is the federal left under William Tecumseh Sherman, and so the troops that were holding Lookout Mountain no longer needed to be holding Lookout Mountain, and so they were transferred to that end of the battlefield. And they they get to be onlookers there. They 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 manage to stand off an attack from Sherman, but they see the collapse of the central Confederate position on Missionary Ridge. Uh, Brown's brigade is not involved in that uh, uh, debacle, but. But the whole whole group has to retreat from there. Um, you mentioned uh, you used used the phrase utility player. I thought I'd, I'd use that same one uh, in my notes here. After this campaign, uh, we merge into the Atlanta campaign of 1864, and. Uh, Brown, again, seems to be promoted uh, temporarily to this division and that division and and uh, does a lot of fighting in the Atlanta campaign. Just in the interest of time, I'll, I'll urge readers, uh, listeners, to go out and become readers. Get a copy of this book. It's really uh, an interesting biography of uh, uh, a, a, an important figure that doesn't get much due. In the aftermath of the Atlanta campaign, we have... Uh, John Bell Hood's ill, ill-starred uh, venture into Tennessee, which is, of course, Brown's home state, and he goes with that army. The, the, the events at Spring Hill are something historians argue about. Uh, the Confederates miss an opportunity there to capture a big chunk of the Union army. And some, uh, uh, there are rumors that, that uh, General Hood was under the influence of 
laudanum. And you're right, there are rumors that, that Brown, uh, rumors that he was, was drinking that night. Uh, but I, from, from what you say, there's, there's not much to support those rumors. Is that accurate? No, I, I think the tendency is to try to explain the unexplainable with uh, you know, rumors of, of pretty women and, and, and drugs and, and gifts of apple brandy as you're marching into Middle Tennessee. And, you know, it, it's still hard to explain Spring Hill. And uh, I've examined it now three times from the standpoint of A.P. Stewart and from the standpoint of Asher Paris and now from John C. Brown. <laughs> it's, still, it's still hard to figure out exactly what happened. It is a mystery how a Union Army could basically walk through the Confederate camp and 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 march to safety, and nobody lifts a finger. Uh, that leads to the the disastrous battle at Franklin, where so many officers are uh, are, are wounded. And here, as you uh, corrected me, uh, here Brown is wounded again, uh, and this was similar to the previous one. Yes, uh, very uh, almost the same place. Which would have been somewhere in the thigh, and uh, uh, he was he was walking on a chain in North Carolina. He, he rejoined the army in North Carolina after Bentonville. He was not uh, engaged at Bentonville, but rejoined the army around April first, and uh, was still walking on a chain at that time. So that that really brings his his military service to an end, of course, with the the surrender of Johnston's army in North Carolina in April 1865, and uh, the subtitle of your book, Rebel, Redeemer, and Railroader, that's just one-third, although it's, it's uh, a good half of the book, uh, his career as a rebel, uh, and it's, it's interesting because so many Civil War books end at that point, and, and the reader turns the page, and uh, here he is back in Pulaski, Tennessee, uh, with sort of feeling, what do we do now? Uh, so, so what do you do now when you, you're a, 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 at one time a wealthy lawyer, political figure, military general, slaveholder? Now the world has changed. What does he do? Well, he, he's still a lawyer. And, and he uh, is able to make a living for himself and his family uh, as a lawyer. Uh, he, of course, he has, uh, even though his side lost uh, in that portion of Tennessee and, and in large portions of the state, he has a great deal of prestige and uh, is able, he's, he's certainly considered a community leader and uh, he's also involved in the Masonic Order and, uh, and, and uh, becomes uh, more influential in, in that uh, sense. And so by 1870, um, he is one of the leaders of the conservative movement to, quote, redeem Tennessee. Uh, he is... Uh, he had, uh, we, of course, again, we, as lawyers and historians, we talk about evidence, and uh, there's there's at least circumstantial evidence that he is involved with the KKK. I don't think he put on the hood and went out and rode at night, but uh, certainly he was sympathetic to them and probably provided some leadership to them. But at any rate, the, the goal, the immediate goal, is to regain conservative control of Tennessee. And and he is on the cutting edge of that. Well, that that uh, you know, some listeners will remember Pulaski, Tennessee, is is often seen as the the or, origin point for the Klan. Uh, and it, it seems you make the argument that that Brown was sufficiently influential that at different times he urged. Uh, Tennesseans not to engage in night riding and, and violence and intimidation. But not because he, he sympathized with the enemies of the Klan. He was happy to see them intimidated, but because he feared that too much vigilantism would bring the hard hand of the federal army upon the state. Is, is that? I, I, yeah, I, I think that's that's correct. Uh, I think the conservatives sensed that they were winning in the 1868-1869 time period. Uh, there certainly was a feeling of illegitimacy of the uh, of the government existing at that time because it, uh, you know, a number of the voters who were former Confederate soldiers were disenfranchised, and and so, you know, why do something uh, outrageous that would would 
you know, bring, you know, other states at that time were, were having uh, hard reconstruction. Why do something in Tennessee to bring that on, on yourself? And your reference to conservatives at that time is interesting. Uh, conservatives with a capital C, they're not a formal political party. Uh, but as we established at the beginning of our, our talk, Brown was a Whig before the war and a unionist and not a Democrat. And the antipathy between Democrats and Whigs was something very difficult for people to get over. It was hard for the Republican Party in the North to form out of ex-Whigs and ex-Democrats. They viewed each other with suspicion within the party. And so the conservative movement, those who don't support the uh, the radical Reconstructionists, the Republicans, are all former Dem- They're all Democrats or former Whigs, but they. Brown's not a Democrat uh, uh, right away after the war. He, he's still. He can't be a Whig, uh, so I guess he's a conservative. Well, he, he's a conservative, but uh, I think politically he recognizes. You know, the enemy is my enemy is my friend. And, and I think the Whigs and the and the Democrats, who are or both of the conservative bent, uh, decided they had to get together in order to to fight Brownlow and the radicals. And so um, he uh, he was getting close to being nominated governor, and all, and one day he announces in a letter in 1870 that he is in fact a Democrat. That uh, um, that that's the only way for Whigs to sustain what Whigs used to be. Uh, is by joining with their ancient enemies in order to defeat the radicals. Well, it, it's a, a fascinating story. Uh, he goes on, becomes governor, uh, is considered for the Senate, has a third career uh, working with, with Jay Gould, the famous railroad man and the financier uh, with the Texas and Pacific Railroad. Uh, listeners, you'll have to get a copy of the book, John C. Brown of Tennessee, Rebel, Redeemer, and Railroader, to find out about that portion of his career. But uh, really an an interesting book. I get books uh, recommended or sent to me regularly, and when they're from people who are attorneys or doctors, I wonder, do they really know anything about history? Uh, And uh, Sam, I went to the library and looked at your your Isham Harris book and said, oh, yeah, this guy knows what he's doing. Uh, and I'm, I'm glad I did. This is a, a, a really an interesting book to read, and uh, I hope it has a lot of success. Thank you very much. I appreciate that. Listeners, you'll want to get a copy of it. And listeners, have a great holiday season. Join us again in 2018. And as always, thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. Thank you for embarking on a part of American history this week. Civil War Talk Radio with Jerry Prokopovich can be heard live every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week. Mm-hmm.